The ancient institution of slavery dominated the landscape of Rome in the first century. It was said that perhaps one-third of the Roman population were slaves. And that doesn't include the many freemen who used to be slaves, but somehow secured their own release. It's interesting that these slaves in the Roman Empire fit in so well to Roman society that you could hardly tell them apart. Of course, you had the ones who did the manual labor. Maybe they were slaves due to punishment, prisoners of war. They worked in the mills and in the mines and maybe on the farms. But then there were domestic slaves, individuals well-educated who were tutoring the children of the rich, or managing large households. And the well-educated slaves, well, they were bureaucrats in city government. Uh, they were physicians, artists. Almost in every endeavor, slaves could be found. Again, they mingled so well in the society that one senator proposed that slaves must wear a certain costume, identifiable clothing, so that you would know that they were slaves. But that idea quickly was rejected because they realized that if all the slaves realized how many slaves there were, they would revolt. In fact, they did. There were three servile wars that erupted from slaves who used to be enemy soldiers and now had been taken in. The last of the servile wars was led by a guy whose name was Spartacus. Oh, Rome had an uneasy relationship with the slaves. You see, they were property and they were treated as such. They had virtually no human rights. They could be bought and sold and rented, treated harshly, branded, and even killed. And the owner usually never was brought to justice. They became slaves because of birth, prisoners of war, auction blocks, and some during times of poverty or famine sold themselves or their children to be slaves, merely to get by. What a horrible system. Unlike the slavery that is familiar to us in the early parts of the history of our own country, this slavery was a little different. There was something called manumission, where they could actually purchase their own slavery, but in, or purchase their own freedom, but in reality, Almost all the slaves stayed slaves. And when Paul wrote his epistle to the Roman church, he could deduce that over half of the people that he would be writing to, the people who were named in chapter 16, over half of them were slaves or had been slaves and knew everything about this horrible institution. And that's why it's pretty shocking when Paul said to them, become a slave of God. That's Romans chapter 6. 
Let's open our Bibles. Romans chapter 6. The first half of Romans 6 dealt with our union with Christ. And then from verse 15 to the end deals with our slavery to God. There are four metaphors that Paul uses to talk about the Christian's connection, the Christian's union with Christ. One is baptism. Uh, The other has to do with marriage. That's chapter 7. Psychology is chapter 7. And in chapter 6, it's this idea of slavery. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. That's a very strong negative in the original Greek language. Some have translated, uh, may it never be. Absolutely not. How could you think of that type of uh, enthusiastic negative response? And if you would go back to the early verses of the chapter, you'll see that Paul is basically doing the very same thing. He repeats verse 1 with almost the same question. What shall we say then? Verse 15, what then? In verse 1, he defends the gospel from wild abuse, and in verse 15, defends the gospel from antinomianism, which is no law or lawlessness. He answers the same way in both sections, by no means, and then follows up with a rhetorical question. Don't you know? Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ have died with him? And now he says, don't you know that if you offer yourself to someone as an obedient slave, that person is your master? It's an important dynamic in the Christian life for us to remember that the Christian life is not led by us. It's led by the Lord Jesus Christ. We say that so quickly, Lord Jesus Christ that we often fail to recognize what we're saying. Change the word Lord to boss. Start calling Jesus your boss in a respectful way. Or your master or your owner because that's exactly what Paul is fleshing out in this portion of scripture. Don't you know, when you know biblical truth, It is imperative that you live the biblical truth. Paul has been talking about the indicative, what is true, and then easily goes into the imperative, what we must do about that truth. I was in a store recently, and I saw a young man wearing a T-shirt with one word printed boldly across the front, therefore. And I so much wanted to go up to him and ask the question, so what's the conclusion? (laughs) Or have you been reading Romans? (laughs) But I'm not very brave, so I kept my mouth shut. (laughs) But that's Paul. Because this is true, therefore, this is how you ought to live. Grace is so amazing that it's susceptible to misinterpretation. And so Paul has to go out of his way to show for sure 
that you understand what he's saying. It's as though he's plowing the same ground twice as he did at the beginning of the chapter. When I used to mow our lot in Holt, the grass would grow thick and strong and tall. And I would cut it twice just to make sure I covered it well. And so Paul is cutting, plowing the same ground twice just to make sure we understand. He begins with the same question. He answers with the same answer and follows up with the same rhetorical question. Because free grace can always be a temptation. Well, if God is more concerned about forgiving me, we may say, if God is all concerned about bringing me back into a relationship with him, and if wherever sin abounds, grace does much more abound, then I really shouldn't be that worried about sin. (laughs) And maybe a little sin is a good thing, because a little sin brings a lot of grace. And Paul says, are you out of your mind? You died to sin. And now you're a slave to God. F.F. Bruce said to to make being under grace an excuse for sinning is a sign that one is not really under grace. There is no license here. There is loyalty and a cry for holiness. Look at verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as an obedient slave, you are the slaves of the one you obey? So here it is, this principle of slavery. It's rather simple. Offer yourself to a master and they become your boss, and you must obey them. Did you notice the word obey? Obey is that cardinal quality, that universal hallmark of slavery. Obey. And that's the word that signifies our initial connection with the Lord. You see, in this idea of slavery with God, there is a beginning. That's where it starts. Actually, there's a beginning with our slavery to sin, just as as there is a beginning with our slavery to God. It's in this portion of Scripture that uh, the idea of sin and obedience are elevated to Lord and Master. Look at the rest of verse 16. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or implied, slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness, you are a slave to the one you obey. It starts with this idea of offering yourself. Now, our slavery to sin started a little bit differently. It started at birth. You were born as a slave to sin. And I can just hear so many people saying, No, I wasn't. That's what the Jews told Jesus, John chapter 8. We have Abraham for our father, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. (laughs) 
I just have to laugh when they say that. Um, what about uh, 400 years in Egypt? What about the Assyrian captivity? Yeah, what about the Babylonian captivity? What about all these other, ca- what do you mean you've never been enslaved to any? Wake up. But you see, we are blind when it comes to our own relationship to sin. We think we're in control. And we aren't. You were born a slave to sin. You may not like it, but it's true. It happened at your birth. And you have willfully offered yourself and the members of your body, the faculties of your mind and the emotions of your heart, you've offered your time and your talents to sin. You say, no, I haven't. I'm living for myself. As I said, (laughs) you have offered yourself to sin. It's called disobedience. Two slaveries are contrasted here, the slavery to sin, which is disobedience, and the slavery to God, which is obedience, verse 16. Obedience. You say, I I don't like either or answers. It's either this or it's that. Isn't that the mark of an ignorant or narrow mind? Well, in many cases it is, but not with biblical anthropology, which describes the human being as a creature of God, made in God's image, who rebels against God and sides with sin, and now born into this world, as a slave to it. It's a total illusion to think that you are actually free until you are made free indeed by Jesus Christ. That is all the difference in the world. The question is not will you bow before a master, but which master will you bow before? Everyone is a slave to sin. The question is will you ever be set free? And become a slave to God. I can remember filling out university courses in a big room at the beginning of a semester and had to find a class on a certain day. And and there were only two classes. I had to pick up one of the two. And basically the university said, it's your choice, but if you don't choose, we'll choose for you. Your options are this or that. And if I didn't like this or that, I could not choose something else. And you may not like the options where you sit today, but your options are this or that, slave to sin, slave to God. You say, I don't like either one. Sorry, those are the two options. And if you don't choose, well, the devil is already chosen. Not to choose is to choose for you're already a slave. Look at verse 17. Here's some hope. Isn't this wonderful? But thanks be to God. That just jumps out of the text. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you came to obey from the heart that pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. That's a beautiful translation. 
The imperfect tense talks about you used to be a slave, meaning that that's your natural condition, the condition in which people find you, maybe the condition in which you are today. But thanks be to God, the second slavery begins with grace. And a hard condition that obeys, that submits to the Lord. Remember the hallmark of slavery is obedience. The one you obey is your Lord. Verse 17 says, we obey from the heart that pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Paul calls the second slavery obedience. Thanks be to God for his Grace. Obedience. <laughs> Ken Hughes said, obedience is viewed today as a cultural obscenity. People do not like to talk about obey. They like to talk about freedom. And isn't it interesting that the people most bound talk more about freedom than anyone else? I think that thou protestest too much. Our only freedom comes from the God who liberates us from the bondage of sin. And notice what we believe, verse 17, is this pattern of teaching. Very difficult form to understand. There's basically two ideas to it. I like the second one more than the first. The first idea is good, though. The form of teaching could have been an early Christian creed. F.F. Bruce probably the summary of Christian ethics based on the teaching of Christ that was presented to every new believer in the primitive church. Added to that, the idea that this might be the baptismal manual that was given to new believers. The Didache, 75 AD, that again, mixed together the requirements, the expectations of someone who was following Jesus Christ. But I like the second interp interpretation a little more. The word form can also refer not just to a body of teaching, but to a model. And it actually says, with no violation to the Greek, you obeyed from your heart the model of the teaching, Jesus Christ, to whom you entrusted your life. So you obeyed from the heart. Either way, it's the same. You don't have the teaching. The teaching has you. And you embrace the Savior of the teaching from the heart. Oh, that's where Christianity takes place. That's where conversion takes place. It's in the heart. Oh, outwardly you'll say something about it and in the waters of baptism, baptism you will go and all of that is good and important but unless you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you won't be saved. But when you believe from the heart, the heart cannot contain the new life that begins and it begins to seep out every pore of your being in the way you think, in the way you talk, in the way you act and where you go because Christ is here and you become 
a slave of God. The form of teaching or the model of that teaching, Jesus Christ has now claimed your allegiance. Isn't that beautifully stated? Who has your allegiance? Oh, we see it all the time in sports, don't we? So I'm flipping the channels and I find something totally useless on the TV is a preseason football game. <laughs> I came into it later and none of the stars are playing. And so you watch it for, and they're getting excited, you know, about what? It means absolutely nothing. But you watch it a little bit. And there's some excitement there. But to no purpose. But you are loyal to the lions. God bless you, my friend. And I mean, it might be different this year, so I, I will stop the analogy. But the point is, let your allegiance be some to someone who has already won and can never fail. Jesus. The best definition of the book of the Revelation is simply this, Jesus wins. And those who put their faith in him win as well. Your first slavery, you entered unwittingly and you were drafted. Your second slavery, you enter willingly because you enlisted in the lordship of our wonderful savior. And remember this, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Matthew 11. And Jesus said, I will give you rest. Take my... That's slavery. Take my yoke. It's not like the world's yoke, but take my yoke and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest. Oh, that's a neat kind of slavery. And that's what Paul is actually talking about. Verse 18, you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves to righteousness. So he's talking in different terms about the same thing. Slaves to obedience, slaves to righteousness, and slaves to God. And then verse 9 is an apology. <laughs> I'm using an example from everyday life, Paul says, because of your human limitations. Remember, this whole thing about slavery was tender to Roman society. And it wasn't the appropriate kind of thing to, to bring in for a Christian analogy. Or was it? Every metaphor has weaknesses at some point of comparison, but that doesn't stop Paul from using something like slavery to make a truth come through clear as crystal, and that is when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord, he is your Lord. And you can even call it slavery. Oh, it's a different type, to be sure. But he owns you. And he directs you, for he is your Lord. This human analogy I use because your human minds can't understand. 
I know there may be some offense, Paul says, but I'm willing to risk offending the sacred to communicate the sacred to the secular. And if you go through the word of God, this is exactly what Jesus did with things called parables. Mundane, earthy, at times vulgar. Vulgar meaning of the world. Not sinful. I mean, Jesus even used bad examples sometimes to encourage good behavior. His parables are designed to communicate spiritual truth, albeit couched in very familiar stories. After all, the incarnate Son of God left the glories of heaven and his equality with the Father to come to this earth and to be made in likeness of a man and then in the likeness of a servant. And did he not embrace the word servant, the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant? Jesus was a servant. And if it's not too low of a position for our Savior to take, how could we claim it's too low for us? By the way, the second word in the book of Romans is the Greek word doulos, which means slave. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. A bond slave, willingly putting your earlobe on the doorpost, as it says in the book of Numbers, and with the all, getting a pierced ear, which told everyone in the world, you are a willing slave to your master. So there is the beginning of this relationship as a slave, but there's also the deepening of it. Look at verse 19, the rest of verse 19. Just as you used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. These are prominent Jewish terms, and it's speaking about going deeper and deeper into sin. So once you become a slave to sin, that's the beginning, but you don't stop there. You deepen and develop that relationship until it becomes stronger and the chains tighter. You used to offer yourselves a slave to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. William Barclay aptly says that sin begets sin. The first time we do a wrong, we may do it with hesitation, maybe even a little trembling. The second time we do it, it's easier. Ever notice that? It's easier. And if we go on doing it, it becomes effortless, and sin loses its terror. Sin begets sin. Oh, but our, our union with Christ and our slavery to God also has this deepening effect. Because just as you used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, and you might say ever-increasing holiness. 
For the obedience to Christ begets more obedience. An old Jewish rabbi, a few decades after Paul, said, hasten to fulfill an easy commitment and flee a transgression. For one commandment obeyed leads to another, just as one transgression committed leads to another after it. And the more we obey, the more we learn to obey, how beautiful it is. If you ever watch NASCAR auto racing, you'll see that there's something called drafting. It's where the second car gets very close to the first car and gets into the pocket of, of wind, uh, uh, not resistance, but of wind coverage so that the wind basically goes over the car. And when it does it, that second car that is obeying the first car nice and close has a wonderful economy of fuel and speed that it could not have on its own. And the closer you draft, the better the effect. Think of the Christian life as a race and you are drafting Jesus. Actually, it's a better analogy to think that you're in the back seat of his car. <laughs> the closer you are to him, the more economic and effective your Christian life. Slavery to sin results in the grim progress of moral deterioration, and that is our society from bad to worse, right? From bad to worse. We read illustrations about that every day. But justification by faith leads to concrete moral growth and improvement. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these precious promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit and let us perfect holiness out of reverence for God. Holiness is one of those terms that scares us because people have so abused it. Let me define holiness this way. It's being like Jesus. It's sharing in the God character. God claims a believer as his treasured possession and then is committed to transforming their character so that they share his likeness. Remember Romans 8:29. God has foreordained to make you like Jesus. It's been predestined if you're a believer. And he's committed to that course. And so, according to verse 19, we're transferred from one kingdom to another. When released from the power of the evil one, we come under the power of the holy one. It's an exchange of lords from a bad one to a good one. It's a transfer of kingdoms from darkness to light. It's clearly an obvious exchange. And if you try to get rid of sin and sweep your life clean of all the evil that may be there and don't replace it with Christ, seven more demons, worse than the first, will come in and occupy your house and you'll be worse off than you were at the beginning because moral reformation never 
transforms a soul. But Jesus does. And you have him as your Lord. So we go from beginning to this deepening. And then finally to an outcome. That is, both of these slaveries start somewhere, deepen, and end somewhere. And the outcome we've already mentioned, but notice in verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you're free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things that you are now ashamed of? For those things result in death. The benefits, if they could be called such, of being a slave to sin, shame, and death. Shame. You weren't ashamed of those things, but now you are. Do you ever in life, just going about your way, doing your own work, suddenly have come into your mind a shameful episode of the past? Has that ever happened to you? Happens to me. And I cry out, oh God, forgive me for such stupidity. It wasn't maybe as shameful at the beginning, but it is shameful now. I wish I could erase it. Oh, wait a minute. It has been erased by the blood of Christ. I just forget. Wish I could. And that is the case. The outcome of those who are slaves to sin are filled with shame. And everything results in death. So there is verse 19, impurity ever-increasing wickedness, shame, and death. But look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result? Life that never ends. Now I have something that I can be thankful for. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through or in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's a verse that we quote often and well we should, but it's, it's kind of neat to see it in its context. It comes at the end of an argument that there are two masters to follow. One pays a wage for your sin. You earn it. It's called death. And the other gives a gift that you cannot earn, and it's called life. Sin and the gift of God, the wages of sin, it's like these are warlords. They're masters. And there's a double military metaphor here. Sin pays death, and God gives life. That's the analogy. The Greek word for wage here is what a soldier's pay 
uh, was given, the, the money given to him. It's what he earned, something due him. You could not deny him of it. And it was paid in installments over the period of his service. That's the word wage. By the way, death is not waiting to be given to sinners in a lump sum. They're getting installments of death as they live. But the gift is the word charisma. Totally free, unearned. You see, an emperor on special days, maybe his birthday, would give a monetary gift to the army. And it's not something they earned. And it was called a charisma. Here's a gift. You earn death, but grace gives you life. Why not serve God with all of your heart? Years ago, the Turks were considered to be the wealthiest merchants in the world. They bought slaves from every slave market, from every nation, and they would bring them back and sell them on the auction block. They would use the slaves in the whole of their ships, chained to the oars, and when the wind wouldn't blow, the slaves would move the ship by the pulling of the oars. The Turks would also go around all over the world. They were around the Mediterranean Sea, the southern tip of Africa and India, gathering together the greatest spices that the world has ever known, bringing them all back to the European, con uh, uh, the European continent with the slaves to sell them at a fabulous profit. They were extremely wealthy. One day, there was a captain of a Turkish ship who was in India making his way back to Europe for the sale of slaves and goods. And there was an Englishman there in India who wanted to go home, so he paid the money to get passage on the ship. And he tried to occupy himself during those tedious months of ship travel by climbing the rigging or walking the deck or reading or conversing. In fact, he even went down into the whole of the ship and would converse with the slaves. And There was one slave that grew his admiration. He was a young Greek lad. It looked as though he was chiseled out of marble. His muscles were so rippling. A great intelligent young man who spoke multiple languages and the Englishman thought how sad it is that this young man with all of these gifts is wasting his life as a slave in the hole of a merchant ship. As they neared, neared the European shore, the Englishman went to the Turkish captain and said, I want to buy one of your slaves. And he mentioned the Greek man's name. Oh, <laughs> That's my most valuable slave. And he offered a, a fabulous price. And to his surprise, the Englishman pulled out his purse and counted out the money and said, now set him free. They went down into the hole of the ship, unchained his hands, and the Greek lad stood rubbing his wrist and said, what's the meaning of this? The Turkish captain said, 
That Englishman over you, over there, just bought you. He owns you. In a moment, the countenance of that young slave changed, changed, and he became like a ferocious animal. His body set as though to spring. His eyes like, like flames of fire. His lips pursed across his teeth, and he spat at the Englishman. You, from a free country, want to make me your slave. I ought to rip you in small pieces with my bare hands. The Englishman sir, said, sir, you misunderstand. I didn't buy you to make you a slave. I bought you because you are one. You can go free. Took a moment for the lad to realize what had happened. He said, oh, oh sir, I am sorry. Please forgive me. I did not understand. I will be your slave for life. My friend, Jesus died because you were a slave. He died to set you free. We ought to cry out with all of our heart, I will be your slave for life. Let's pray. There is no mercy Like yours, O Lord, there is no grace like God's. Out of love, you sent your Son to be our Savior and to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And you've come to liberate our souls with a liberation and freedom that comes only by owning you as our Savior and our boss, our master, and our Lord. While all the analogy is not appropriate, certainly at the core, it is right to say that we are slaves to God. There may be someone here who has never trusted Christ. I pray that today they would give their heart and soul to you and find your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and your servitude is rest. In your name we pray, amen.